2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel. My co-host is Robert. And we're back at it again with Jurassic Park. It's the 25th anniversary, and there's even a new Jurassic Park movie coming out. So we have plenty to talk about, even though it might be a shorter episode. How you doing, Robert? Hey, everybody. I'm back. We're doing another one. Um, yeah, I'm doing all right, buddy. Lost a little power today. Got it back. Got my juice back. And uh, trying a slightly new setup with a range extended Wi-Fi. So hopefully this goes well. But yeah, you know. Yeah, so you tried out, you tried out the... Uh, the post-apocalyptic and prim lifestyle for for a few hours today. And what did you think? Did you find it um, becoming upon you? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's brutal. So, you know, you don't have power. So, of course, the the pump doesn't work, so you don't have water. And even the little the little lighter, the little spark lighter on the gas stove doesn't work. So you have to pull out the old, you know, like a, a hand lighter or a match or something like that to actually even, like, cook anything. Savage. And I didn't have, you know... You know, the um, the distraction boxes, you know, your computer, your TVs, your whatnot. Neanderthal. So you're going, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to fill my time with without, you know, modern distractions? And I ended up like getting work done. Caveman. It was weird. Troglodyte. I don't recommend it at all. It was a nightmare. Three hours of just sheer hell. Yeah. No, never want to go back to that. Ugh, gross. All right. Well, good, good stuff. I can hear birds in the background. So at least the, the birds are, are powering. Yeah, the birds are happy. It's um, it's actually been super, super stormy here the past few days. So for the past three days, we've gotten about for at least about an hour a day. We've got some serious thunder and lightning, stormy, shaking windows, cracking explosions right over your head. And you're sure these and... aren't like the birds, which are the ancestors or descendants of dinosaurs and they're jarring like cups of water in your house with this thunderous noise well it, it, i imagine it's very similar you know i was thinking back to whenever anything like this happens i my mind goes to like you know ancient times and you would just be looking at the sky and wondering why this is happening and you're like oh the gods must be angry i'm like oh zeus don't kill me, Zeus. And yeah, these big booms and shakes. Oh, it must have been terrifying for, you know, primitive man. I mean, it scares the crap out of like, you know, cats and dogs and stuff. They don't know what's going on. So yeah, it's like it's like a dinosaur's attacking you. It's fun. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you're reliving the movie only without power. So you have to just remember it and feel the vibrations and the noises happening on the outside in the world, in the environment. Well, in the movie, there's some very tense scenes when the power goes out and you actually have to deal face to face with some dinosaurs without any kind of modern 
defenses. And we'll get into it on this episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, which I didn't mention is episode 82. So you can find the show notes and more at actualanarchy.com slash 82. So let's get into it, Daniel. All right, let's get into the uh, last nerds portion of the show. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters, and we're going to talk about Jurassic Park. It's the 25th anniversary, and this is episode 25 of the show, lastnighters.com slash 25 for the show notes and more. And I just want to uh, let you guys all know that I've got Johnson over here. It's Johnson, everyone. Johnson, right over here. See, no one cares. (laughs) What? No people care. People like me, right? Hey, I like to at least live in the illusion that people like me and care that I'm here. And I am here. Hey, everybody. How's it going? All right, so hold on to your butts. We spared no expense, and we found a way to bring you this episode of The Last Nighters Talking Jurassic Park. So let's get into it. Google description. Jurassic Park, 1993, Steven Spielberg, fantasy, science fiction film, two hours and seven minutes, which I might add only 15 of those minutes actually have a dinosaur on screen. Here's the ratings. And only like six minutes of that is CGI footage, right? As I recall, something like that. Yeah. Versus animatronics. Yeah, yeah. They did have some like close-up type animatronic stuff going on. But let's get into this. Uh, 8.1 on the IMDb, 68% Metacritic, 92% Rotten Tomatoes, and 92% of the Google users. And here's the description. In Steven Spielberg's massive blockbuster, paleontologists Alan Grant and Ellie Settler, played by Sam Neill and Admiral Holdo, Captain Gender Studies, Laura Dern, and mathematician Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, are among a select group chosen to tour an island theme park populated by dinosaurs created from prehistoric DNA. While the park's mastermind billionaire John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, assures everyone that the facility is safe, they find out otherwise when various ferocious predators break free and go on the hunt. Came out June 11, 1993, from the venerable director Steven Spielberg. Very famous director, does a very fine job, and I think he did fairly well here. What do you think of the description, Robert? Well, the one thing that jumped out at me, well, something I was also kind of considering while I was watching the movie, is the description says it's fantasy slash sci-fi. And I was wondering if you thought it was either fantasy or sci-fi. Because I would categorize, I mean, first of all, let's get a a definition. Fantasy is something that can never happen or at least could never happen with, you know, as we understand the world to be. Whereas sci-fi could actually happen if technology was sufficiently advanced. And for me, I thought that this movie was something that was sci-fi. I could see this actually happening. I mean, human beings are getting their organs cloned. They're growing ears on the backs of mice. We're doing all kinds of advanced kind of things like that. I don't know specifically about the viability of, you know, blood out of a mosquito trapped in amber that's been, you know, petrified over millions of years, the viability of that DNA being combined with frog DNA. I don't know the viability of that. But if you can, you know, make glow in the dark, what puppies and cats that they're doing now, or they have been doing for many years now, um, I really don't see why it wouldn't be possible to at least engineer some sort of a dinosaur type creature. So for me, it's sci-fi. What do you, what say you, Daniel San? Well, it seems pretty fantastical to me. Uh, I, I I like the Goldblum and Sattler's position that you're bringing something back that went extinct and it went extinct for a reason. And it's been millions of years 
And to think that you can just spontaneously bring this thing back into present time in an entirely different environment, like the atmosphere is different, the vegetation is different, the microorganisms and diseases and other things are now different, uh, to expect that they'll be able to just hum along as they had been millions of years prior, I think, is folly. Right. To throw, as the movie is presented, to throw some dinosaurs that you build in a lab and to just throw them out into the world and expect them to thrive as they once did for many, many millions of years. Yeah, I could see that being fairly far-fetched. But that's not to say that those wouldn't just be issues that you wouldn't be able to solve. Well, you could. I have notes on this where we get into that point of the discussion where uh, Attenborough sitting across from Sattler saying, I can figure this out. We now know that we need even more protocols and rely less on automation or electronic things. And Sattler's like, no, you don't get it. You can't solve for everything. It's impossible. Everything is, there's too many variables. It's like trying to, you know, predict the weather, but, you know, in a year, uh, or it's it's like trying to decipher what the spontaneous order of the market is going to be, you know. And Attenborough, uh, John Hammond, he is the optimistic central planner. He thinks if he just puts enough resources and spares no expense and gets the right people in place and the right plan, that he can solve this. And Sattler and uh, what's his name, Gladwell? No, uh, Goldblum, um, Malcolm. He's like, no, you can't do this. It's the the chaos and and the the variables are too immense for you, for any one uh, plan to be able to be successful when it comes to the scale of what they're trying to, to play with here. So you are actually on board with Malcolm's idea here. You're on board with the actual ultimate claim the movie makes that mankind or man is just incapable of creating something of this magnitude. Well, I mean, everything that we recognize as human beings with as civilization has grown out of the mind of man. I mean, that's like the, the Ayn Randian mantra, right? Like all the riches of the world and everything that has been extracted and transformed into something else is all born in the consciousness of man in his mind to take those things from the natural world and use them, organize them in such a fashion to where they are useful implements. Indeed. So I see, I see, I see Attenborough as, as more of an entrepreneur. In fact, as like an ultimate entrepreneur. Now this venture failed, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't ever succeed. I mean, this is a guy who's putting massive amounts of his own wealth at risk to provide this incredible service to people that's going to create tons of value. I mean, the, the the lawyer guy isn't wrong when he's like saying, hey, we could basically punch our own ticket. I mean, we could write it. We could charge whatever we want. I mean, everybody from all around the world is going to is going to want to see this. I mean, I would. It would be incredible. But just to park for the super rich, the richest 1% are the only ones who can afford to go to Jurassic Park. We need just okay, one Bernie. type of dinosaur. Yeah, there is a there is a line from Attenborough. He retorts to the uh, lawyer who's like, no, this is this is a park for everybody. We're going to make it cheap so that because everybody has a right to experience dinosaurs, <laughs> which is just like the most hilarious claim ever made. Everybody has a right to experience dinosaurs, Daniel. <laughs> How is that? How is that a natural right? Anybody has right. You're Clearly, kidding. somebody has to go through immense labor, uh, great expense to bring it to you. So, how is that any kind of a right? Yeah, it's like uh, it's it's several levels up on the scale of positive rights. You know, you've got like healthcare and education and things like that that people are uh, 
whining about nowadays. And then you got a movie like this where it's like, no, let's just 10x the uh, absurdity of. <laughs> it's almost yeah, like they're rights. taking it to the um, to the logical uh, ad- absurdum. Is that what they call it? Mm-hmm. Like where you take it all the way out to where it's clearly, obviously absurd to everyone. <laughs> yeah. What positive rights do you have? The right to see dinosaurs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'll just make that happen. I'll just snap my fingers, and everybody gets to see dinosaurs. Yeah, so but part of what you said about that, Burrow, I think you're right. I mean, he, he is an entrepreneur type, but he's also a planner type, and he thinks he can solve for all the problems, but he's also taking all that risk on his own. He's putting his own effort in his own dime. You know, he's got skin in the game in this thing. Sure. Uh, so it, it, it's sort of like he's this combination, right? Because uh, even though he's wrong about it being a positive right for people to see dinosaurs, he is, with his efforts, making it even possible and eventually cheaper for the masses to be able to do so. Counter to what the uh, lawyer guy wanted, you know, the park for the super rich, quote unquote. Uh, and the lawyer said, well, maybe we can have a coupon day. But right, even by putting this out there and then having competition and his desire to make it more affordable will eventually make it more affordable, right? I mean, that that's where... Mises made this insight where the super rich are the ones who are the first acquirers of new technology and new goods and services, right? And they're willing to pay for those things. And people respond, entrepreneurs respond to that and say, oh, okay, there's profit to be made in creating this. And they compete with each other, improve upon things, and the price comes down. And eventually the masses can enjoy those things. You and I, even though we're relatively poor by today's Western standards, live better than kings just a few centuries ago. Indeed. And I would liken Hammond's ideas to the ideas of all the great innovators. I mean, the first airplanes killed a whole bunch of people, of people trying to fly those airplanes. Um, the first self-driving cars have killed a few people, even though it's far, far less. But each time it happens, it's a big news headline. But all kinds of new technology as it's just getting started, where they're working the bugs out and working the kinks out, you know, people die. And I'm not saying that it's great, of course. Um, I probably wouldn't bring my grandchildren to a park with, you know, meat-eating dinosaurs. Right, yeah. Yeah, what is that? You know, he brings his grandkids to this untested area where he's still vetting it out on whether it's even safe. And that's why he brought these experts, you know, and and that I have a side rant on that about technocrats and technocracy. But yeah, how does he bring his kids or his grandkids there and think it's going to be like a safe thing? Yeah, I mean, I understand from the storytelling perspective, you want some you know, vulnerable people that you want to care about and you want tense situations. And there's plenty of that in this movie. It's fantastic. But yeah, as a, as the Hammond, Hammond's character, why, why would you ever in a million years bring grandchildren to a thing? And where are the children's parents? What did they agree to that? It's like, grandpa, grandpa wants you to come to, come to dinosaur world. And there's actual living dinosaurs out there. And uh, yeah, we haven't tested it yet, but you know, you should go play with grandpa. What? Yeah, I mean, the lawyer's there to try to make sure it's safe for investors' money, you know? So right. they're not even willing to put their money in this thing without having it checked out first. And then he's bringing the grandkids. So that's just, yeah. I think it's mostly for well, the and, story, but... And speaking of checking out, 
Um, that's my one kind of big complaint about the movie is at this late stage where he's already sunk, you know, billions of dollars where, you know, the, the park is almost completely done. The, he said there's there's a few things to be left to be polished up and whatnot, but mostly it's all done. I mean, all the buildings are there. The security's all there. All that stuff's in. Why only now are you bringing in some paleontologists to come along and sign off on things? Why wouldn't you have done that 10, 15 years ago when this is just, you know, a germ of an idea in your brain? I mean, clearly you wouldn't have a movie at that point. But in reality, you would probably get together with a whole bunch of risk assessors and paleontologists and dinosaur experts and lawyers and investors and, you know, just get all the brightest minds together and go, you know, is this even feasible? What are the you know possible pitfalls? You know, what's the dangers before you're going to spend billions of dollars <laughs> making a park? Right. And this is like the early 90s. So billions of dollars is probably about as much money as this guy's got, right? Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, how many dinosaurs did they have? They had all kinds of dinosaurs and these things are huge. And, you know, you're feeding the, the mediators all the time. You know, you're, you're dealing with all kinds of medical issues, the scientists, the power, then not to mention the fact that he's leasing that entire island. That can't be cheap. Yeah, from from the Costa Rican government, right? Yeah. So, yeah. side note on the Costa Rica, uh, they had actually investigated shooting in Costa Rica instead of Hawaii, where they ended up shooting those scenes on the Nepali coast. Uh, but the Costa Rican government wouldn't permit them to build roads, so the government shut down road competition, which <laughs> forced them to go and shoot in Hawaii instead, where they actually went through a real hurricane. Hilarious. But government, they build the roads. What would we do without them? Well, if they're not going to let you build your own, I mean, is we've talked in the pre-show, there's the absence of alternatives. That's what they do when they monopolize these services. They prevent competition from playing its part in improving quality and reducing cost. And you're sort of left with what they allow to uh, exist. And so some would argue there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. But if you can't do something else without being violently aggressed upon, uh, then, you know, you're probably better off saving your plane to fight for another day. Indeed. All right. So let's. So, well, you, okay. you were going somewhere. So, well, I was going to switch it up. Okay. Because the entire plot of this movie, well, I don't know if it's the entire plot, but one of the main plot subpoints or whatever you want to call it is Newman stealing embryos to sell to, I suppose, some competing company. Yeah. The corporate which, espionage. He's going to bring you guys up five or 10 years. Right. Which we assume that there's some other competing company that is also trying to make dinosaurs a reality. And I mean, clearly Nedry is not only is he like putting all kinds of people at risk and like destroying property to steal these embryos, but he's also physically stealing some embryos. It's not just he's copying some files and then emailing them to to uh, some competition. But I, I kind of wanted to get into an actual intellectual property discussion. But I mean, this is really kind of it seems more like just a straight up case of theft. And what did what did you think about that? Well, I do think that IP is probably pretty intrinsically tied to that whole concept of the theft and the corporate es corporate espionage and why he's seeking the payout and why they're willing to pay it, right? Because there's patents and other things that are impediments to open competition. And I think that they would actually need to have the embryos themselves to be able to you know, run their trials and, and learn from them as well. Uh, the, the thing that I found interesting was that there seemed to be some acrimony between Wayne Knight, uh, the Nedry, who's the fat hacker troll basement dweller, <laughs> uh, and John Hammond. 
And it reminded me of in the Lebowski, where the big Lebowski, Jeff, uh, the uh, the older guy, the rich gentleman, and the Jeff Bridges character. The dude. The dude are talking about uh, people stationed in life and what they're willing to work for. And it sounded to me when Hammond and Nedry were conversing that Nedry had agreed to a certain price for his services as like a contractor or whatever. He had a contract he made with Hammond and he later on was unhappy with the deal that he made. And so he's complaining to Hammond and Hammond's like, hey, man, I'm not worried about what you're doing with your money and what your financial situation is that you've put yourself in, but I need you to do your job. Did you pick up on that at all? Sure. Yeah, there, that 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 whole scene where Newman is whining to Hammond about his money problems. Like he, he was acting as if he wasn't getting paid what he thought he ought to be paid, which, you know, a lot of people probably feel that, but at the same time, there's nobody around offering them a better job. So this is the best job you could get at that time. And you voluntarily accepted it. You were happy with it. And then you come along later on. Now that's not to say you can't like negotiate for a raise or, you know, renegotiate terms. You can renegotiate terms. I have a problem with that. But for him to do, yeah, be like a whiner, like, Oh, I'm just not worth what I'm paid and you're not going to pay me more. So I'm just going to steal from you and sell to your competition. Yeah. Yeah. You're not. I mean, he's, he's clearly the villain here. So I don't think that there's any doubt to anybody watching this who the villain of this show is. Newman. Newman. All right. So I want to go back to uh, you mentioned the frogs already. And there's a point in the film where they talk about where, where Grant realizes that, you know, when the life finds a way. That by mixing the, the frogs f- turn themselves gay. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. The frogs turn themselves gay because he says that in certain populations in a single sex environment, the male frogs will spontaneously turn to female. And so they'll be able to recreate, procreate. And so or was it female to male or whatever? It was one way. Yeah, it was whichever way to whichever. Yeah, the, the, the frogs was male to female, but these dinos were all allegedly supposed to be female only. But it was right. the frog DNA to where life found a way to be able to create offspring. Yeah. Turning the frogs gay. So we gay, don't need Alex Jones the, for this. They can the, do it themselves. Turning the dinos gay. Yeah, baby. So anyway, I thought that was uh, that was kind of funny. And uh, yeah, he says, West African frogs have been known to spontaneously change from male to female in a single sex environment. So I'm just curious, do we call them drogs? Yeah, drogs. That sounds about right. You don't want to be offensive. Yeah, and speaking of offensive, when the crocodile Dundee motherfucker uh says uh-huh. clever girl did yeah he just assumed the he? raptor's gender rude so rude no wonder she ate his face off i was totally cheering for her to eat his face off at that point that was offensive how dare he yeah and to go further with that he earlier had said that the the raptors are intelligent they display intelligence that they're working things out they're learning they're systematic so i'm curious does that borderline mean that they have sentience and perhaps natural rights well, yeah, they, you can make an argument. Um, I'd be willing to entertain the notion. Um, you know, generally there are certain arbitrary kind of benchmarks for intelligence that we humans like to use, like tool use and language, you know, that sort of thing. I, I don't know if, if those raptors could qualify for any of those things, but they're definitely kind of similar to like wolves like pack hunters that, you know, work together and cooperatively take down prey. So I don't know if they'd quite reach the sentience bar, but maybe that's only due to our lack of understanding of their actual intelligence. Our, 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 you know, understanding of the natural world is, is constantly evolving and it's nowhere near complete. So I'd be interested to entertain uh, an argument, but yeah, I, I don't know if I can definitively say one thing one way or the other. 
But speaking of these dinosaurs, Daniel, in this whole movie that we're talking about that we watched, um, one thing that I kind of wanted to get into, and we've already kind of mentioned it a little bit here, but it's the idea of, and you've, you've mentioned Malcolm. So Malcolm, he's a chaos theorist. And at one point, he's telling Hammond that the scientists could make dinosaurs, but they didn't stop and ask if they should make dinosaurs. And then he says this word, this sentence, discovery is the rape of the natural world. Now, for me, when you say an interesting question like, you know, they could, but they didn't ask if they should, that's kind of interesting. And you can tear that apart and dissect it. But then he says, discovery is the rape of the natural world. That just screams to me of anti-human environmentalist bullshit. Yeah, it sounds like an intellectual Marxist. <laughs> yeah, it's like anytime you create anything, anytime you shape the world in any way to suit your needs, you're some sort of a destroyer. Like, okay. <laughs> But you're a human too, asshole, and you're completely enjoying all the fruits of all the human labors and all the destruction. So you can be a critic all you want, but you're a hypocritical critic. Yeah, and he is because even later or shortly, you know, his next sentence out of his mouth is you're standing on the shoulders of giants taking shortcuts, but not taking the responsibility for the consequences. So on the one hand, he's saying that it's the rape of the natural world, this discovery and they're taking shortcuts, but they're standing on the shoulders of giants who already did do Discovery, which apparently was a good thing to him, right? Yeah. At what point is the Discovery good? Because <laughs> only only now is it bad? Or only when you don't like it, is it bad? What? But maybe we could talk about um, whether they should have or not even tried this, because there is a fair amount of debate going on in the world in terms of genetic manipulation and genetic creation and... I guess it's, I don't know if it's illegal in international law, but there are many countries have laws on books that say you can't, you know, um, like create a human in a laboratory, or like a human-like animal hybrid or something like that. I don't know exactly the nomenclature to use here, but I would imagine that even though most of the people and all the science geeks and nerds and most average people would love to see dinosaurs, there might be other people that would be, see this as some sort of a, an abomination, like you said, like, or like Malcolm says, you know, that these creatures are extinct for a reason and yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, one, do you see any kind of moral issue with this sort of scientific work? Or is it mostly mainly for you just like more of a practical thing? Like these things are going to turn around and literally bite you in the ass because you can't control it. I mean, th this is this is a can of worms question. And I don't know if I have thought it through well enough to really be informed on it. But I do know that there are people who are both for and against, say, stem cell research or embryonic research or other things of that nature that have to do with, you know, questions of life and creation. And some of that's related to religious aspects. Uh, I, what I can say unequivocally is that laws and edicts from on high, i.e. the government, I would be against. So I don't think that you can impose these moral questions top down from the government, for sure. I do think it's still an interesting question and discussion to have, uh, just in general. But I think in a you know in a free environment, there really wouldn't be a mechanism other than your patronage of shutting something down, right? Like if if an entrepreneur takes the risk and people are willing to purchase that good or service, then that'll incentivize them to do more and, and other entrepreneurs to join in and improve upon it and improve the price and, and all of those things. But I mean, what by what mechanism would you prevent something like, you know, these quasi-religious moral uh questions that might, you know, for some people, this would be a bad thing and others, not so much a bad thing. Like, I, I believe there is an objective morality, but then there's also a level of subjective morality that's different for other people. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, 
murder is always bad. Rape is always bad. That's objective. But when it comes to questions of aesthetics and preferences or religious aspects or other beliefs that are a little bit more nebulous, I think, then you get into some subjective areas. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do follow what you're saying. I I would be on your, I'm with you. Um, you know, if somebody tomorrow opened up some sort of a zoo and it just had, you know, human animal hybrids in it, like, Hey, we grew these creatures in a lab and here's a, you know, half human, half Fox, and here's a half human, half peacock or whatever. And, you know, there's these just freaks of science, I guess you could call it for lack of a better term. I think there would be massive protests, massive protests by all kinds of religious groups and other people who just find it abhorrent that you would take a you know a, a really intelligent human creature or something that had the potential to be a human being and then changed it into you know something else that people would see as a sort of you know an abomination especially because it would be against you know that person's you know inherent rights property rights of their own body being you know not transformed into whatever even though they wouldn't have existed if the people hadn't done it and never mind the fact that i'm sure there's all kinds of furries out there that would love to do something like that to themselves pay lots of money to have that done to themselves but yeah ultimately i think it would be solved in the market like you're right uh, there would be you know some people would support it by wanting to go see these kind of freak shows and other people would be no i wouldn't and, and this is kind of also played out in the uh, you know the pt barnum thing with all the uh, the freak show and how you know that was the best work that those people could get and there's a lot of you know you know pushback from these days saying that you know barnum was a monster and that he exploited those people when in reality there was nobody else giving them a better job you know they were able to provide for themselves and their families by exploiting their unique gifts that people wanted to pay to see so yeah there would ultimately be tons of uproar about something like that and i i think ultimately it would fail i think i think that yeah the patronage would go down after the initial shock and you know curiosity wore off um but i really don't see a huge market for this sort of a thing um and I'm, i agree with you entirely with the uh the top-down law approach is is wrong yeah and speaking of a market mechanism you know we see an example of it when the lawyer is there and they want to have experts grant and and malcolm come and check out the park to make sure it's safe to invest in that is a market mechanism that is a private arbitration that is a voluntary situation right and it can easily get conflated and mixed up with the governmental process, like from the progressive era and ever since, of having experts in the field or technocrats who are in the, in the employ of the government or, or tabbed by government to make these decisions and thus given power in exchange for the intellectual cover uh, to craft the messaging that is then meted out to the uh, unwitting public. If you follow. Sure. Yeah. No, that, that happens all the time with uh, people like Keynes. And um, well, you see all kinds of talking heads on TV doing the exact same thing. Right. I mean, yeah. The technocrats are often invited to, you know, write invited the laws, to some function. Write the legislation. Meeting write the regulations. To, to, I don't know what you're saying, but um, I'm to, saying that, uh, that they know, look to weigh these... in on policy. Yeah. Weigh in or even write it or head up the department or the bureaucrat, you know, the bureaucracy. Oh, sure. Because mm -hmm, who else mm -hmm. but the experts would know better? And so they get to write the regulations and rules for everyone else. And because they're the entrenched interest, of course, they're going to write it into their benefit. Whatever interest that they have, they're going to write it in such a way to that, you know, whatever their cronies and their company uh, has an advantage of. And it's a way to eliminate comp 
competition and reduce, uh, you know, reduce the uh, uh, the amount of effort and innovation that they need to put forth and maintain a higher monopoly price. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, a natural function of the goalposts being put in place. And if you don't take advantage of that, you're almost doing your shareholders a disservice. So it's, um, you know, I, I don't approve of it. But, you know, I think the, the, the issue is that, you know, the government exists and yeah, I don't know, I'm losing my thought, but <clears throat> yeah, anyway, let's, um, do you mind if we talk about, you know, just in, in, unless you have any big kind of interesting issues that we've been discussing, do you mind if we just talk about the, the craft of the film a little bit maybe the acting and the, and the, and the special effects as they hold up over time? Yeah, we can get into that. Certainly. Um, I, I kind of mentioned earlier that it's Spielberg and he's known to be a, um, you know, he's one of the top well-known directors, and he's a very good at his craft. Yet even still, uh, if you look closely, there are still lots of errors in the movie. How about that um, that little terrible actor kid at the very beginning when he's like talking about how the velociraptors are like little turkeys? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Grant's like goes and scares him with the claw and says, he'd rip you apart and eviscerate you and eat you while you're still alive. And I think yeah. um, Ellie said to him after that, uh, you might as well pull a gun on him. Yeah, um, I don't really have a point to make about that, but I thought that kid was a terrible actor. <laughs> he struck me as like producer's kid number two or something like that. That's how Hollywood movies get made, man. It's fine. But um, I mean, even though the CGI has aged quite a bit, especially those first scenes and any kind of outdoor scenes in the daytime, they look like they don't really have a whole lot of weight to them. But, you know, in the dark scenes and there's some really good tense scenes, I mean, this is the movie where Crichton, the actual original author, co-wrote it or co-wrote the screenplay and the some really good tense scenes, a lot of like verging on, I'd say, horror. I mean, not that there's any like really blood in the movie, but there's just a lot of tense kind of scary moments, um, you know, with the first T-Rex attack. There's the the velociraptors in the kitchen. There's the the, the, the family climbing the electric fence. There's all kinds of really good stuff. Oh, yeah. So Goldblum's always really good. He's always a lot of fun as an actor. Uh, he doesn't really play anybody but himself, but who cares? Because he's just so unique and weird. He's a lot of fun. Uh, Sam Neill's okay. Professor Gender Studies was fine. Um, the kids actually weren't super terrible, which is always a plus. Anything else? I don't know. Well, Hammond was good, and, and Wayne Knight was good, and of course, Sam Jackson, Mr. Arnold in his pre-pulp fiction appearance. And this is actually the second movie in a row that we've talked about with him in it. He was Frozone in The Incredibles. That was our prior episode. That's right, yeah. No, yeah, Sam. Sammy Jackson, he shows up, does a decent job. And he holds on to some um, butts. Yeah, holds on to some boots. It was fine. It was good. And he goes... Yeah, I can't complain the, too much the power, about the acting or the special effects. The power goes down and he goes and trips the breakers and, you know, a fucking shark ate him. It happens, you know. Oh, that was the one jump scare that I didn't appreciate was where uh, Professor Gender Studies is turning on the power and then the Velociraptor comes through like the, the cables. It's like, really? There's a, there's a Velociraptor just hanging out in there and then he's going to poke his head through some steel cables? That made no sense to me, but all the rest of it was good. Well, you know, Robert, we can discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back. Yes, and we will, Daniel. How dare you? You know, that line, I saw it right at the end, uh, Kathleen Kennedy's name come up as a producer. I'm like, there you go. That's why that line's in there. <laughs> yep that's right she is one of the producers of this movie and yeah she apparently has been um feministing up these movies ever since most famously doing it with star wars these days but yeah, the yeah T you know that TLJ. she might have had a little bit of input there yeah yeah interesting 
Uh, you know, I wanted to mention one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. Um, did you notice any nods to other films in this? Like, I felt as though when the kids were hiding from the raptors in the commercial kitchen, it reminded me of very much of Danny hiding from Jack Torrance. And then they even oh. locked the raptor in the freezer, similar to how Torrance got locked in the pantry. Could be. Could be. I mean, it, the Shining would have existed for a good 12 years at this point. And I imagine every one of those people involved in this production had seen it. And so, Kubrick's, yeah, uh, it's hard. Uh, Steve Spielberg probably liked the uh, Kubrick, you know? Sure. Yeah. Oh, by the way, in reading up on this, um, apparently the firearm, the gun that Crocodile Dundee uses, I forget his name. The uh, shotgun? Yeah, the shotgun. Uh, Spielberg actually has that, and it's a working rifle or working mm. shotgun, and he's a bit of a gun enthusiast. Oh, really? I find that surprising because I equate most Hollywood a uh, directors and actors as being sort of leaning on the left. Um, now, I don't know if Spielberg is one of those like left on most things, but still appreciates guns, firearms, but just an interesting thing. That is a little interesting anecdote. I don't know where his politics lie, but I have... He, I, the fact that I don't know his politics is probably, you know, indicative of the fact that he probably just stays out of all that crap because, you know, most he's I don't know if you get brownie points, you know, Hollywood points when you virtue signal to the left. But he's I think he's at a point where he, he doesn't have to do that. He's essentially a living legend. So why would he need to virtue signal about whatever dumb cause the left has du jour? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the um, how the kids ended up in that kitchen scene anyway, because Grant brings the kids there after Timmy gets shocked on the fence. And then he leaves them there and doesn't seem to get back to them for quite a while. I mean, I know it's only a few minutes in movie time, but it seemed kind of bizarre that getting the kids back there and then realizing that, hey, there's raptors and T-Rexes everywhere. Maybe the kids shouldn't be left alone anywhere. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. It did kind of stick out at me like he just left them alone as they're sitting there eating their food or whatever in that hall. Seems kind of out of place, especially since later on, apparently that hall is so porous that a T-Rex could just waltz in there and nobody notices. <laughs> I mean, spoilers for the very last scene, but... You know they're having a, like a duke a fight out with some t some raptors along the, uh, the the skeletons, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this T Rex that just starts eating the the, the raptors, saves the, the day, humans. saves the day, saves the day. It's like which would be repeated ad nauseum in this franchise. I don't know about the Lost World or the third movie, but in the the reboot, it's like again the T Rex is the good guy. It just seemed it seemed odd to me. So the T-Rex is the real M MVP, is what you're saying? The real hero? Yeah, he's the real hero. It's the T-Rex, the Tyrannosaurus Rex that goes around eating everything. It's a big it's a big toothed face with legs, and it goes around eating everything in sight, and it's the hero. All right. All right, so they, they should have the T-Rex should have top billing on this uh on this franchise. And speaking of, you know, the real MVP, that's of course a quote from uh, Kevin Durant when he won the MVP. And speaking of basketball and cultural impact, which at the time I thought was really stupid and it seemed very fleeting, was that an expansion basketball team named themselves after this movie in 1994, I think. And when this, you know, had just come out and was super popular, the Toronto Raptors. 
Did they really name themselves because of the movie? Why else would they have called themselves Raptors? Well, I thought that maybe there was like some dig site or something, or maybe like the University of Toronto had some famous dinosaur exhibit or something, maybe. I don't know. All right. Well, maybe, but I kind of doubt it. It seems a little bit too close for comfort for me. I think that that basketball team was established shortly after this movie came out. And I, I felt at the time that they picked the name because of a popular movie. And yes, it's a great movie. We can get into our final summary and review here in a second. And it has a big cultural impact, but it just seems rather short-sighted. I mean, imagine, you know, when the Washington Bullets became a, a team, you know, and now they're the Wizards. Imagine they named themselves the Wizards because of Harry Potter, or they called themselves the Wookiees because Star Wars came out in 77. Wouldn't that seem a little bit too, what's the word? Um, Hokey? Crappy? Hokey, but like just lame, like this pure moment of, well, this is popular right now. So let's name something that's going to have this name for a long time. <laughs> well, after that popular thing is going to go away, you know, you got to you got to ride the wave of success, Daniel. You got to name yourself the the pet rocks and then you'll just be like, yeah, baby, riding it forever. The Seattle hula hoops. Yeah, baby. The Rubik's Cubes. Anyway, I just thought, you that, know, that that was really dumb to name them the Toronto Raptors. Now, perhaps I can be corrected and that there is a, di a dig site or something to do with dinosaurs or paleontology or something related to the city of Toronto, but I highly doubt it. Well, in their defense, Daniel, Raptors is actually a pretty cool word and it's a pretty cool name. There are far dumber sports team names. In the NBA alone, there's the Pelicans. Then in like basketball, you know, in, in the NCAA, there's like the banana slugs. I mean, you know, there's... <laughs> Yeah, UC Santa Cruz, right? Is that the banana slugs that was uh, featured Pulp prominently Fiction, in Pulp Fiction? Yes, yes, that's right. So anyway, I mean, yeah, the the timing isn't great, and if they had, if they did name it after the movie, yeah, kind of kind of lame, but it's not the worst name in the world. Yeah, but it just goes to show like how much of an impact this movie had. I mean, they had brilliant marketing. Did you did you notice that they showed the gift shop in the movie? It's like this self referential product placement. It's like, hey, yeah. everyone, here's all the stuff you can buy if this movie is a success. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I I liked it when the little girl was like, this is like a CD-ROM display or something like an interactive CD-ROM. <laughs> the latest and greatest technology, 1992, baby. All right, man. So let's, let's get into the uh, final summary and review, shall we? Shall we? We shall. All right, so I'll, I'll go first. Ladies first, right? So I find that this had a rather large cultural impact of dinosauric proportions. And it's a well-crafted movie. It still holds up to this day. It is a bit dated in some areas of the CGI, but it was also one of the first examples of moving away from that stop motion, sort of um, Clash of the Titans style of animation and, and presentation on film of non-living things. Uh, but it, it still is very good and well done, and it spawned a whole host of sequels and reboots and merchandising and a basketball team, and uh, well done. Well done, Spielberg. Well done, Captain Gender Studies and Jeff Goldblum. So I'm going to go with a ginormous 8.8 .8 on this. 8.8 .8 on the Richter scale for Daniel. Well, you know, you mentioned the CGI, and I don't know if you know this or not, but you and I are both fairly old men. And I remember, I remember the the promos for this movie and the the excitement of this revolutionary CGI. 
because it was a big selling point for the movie. Like this is the first movie where you're going to believe that these dinosaurs are real. And I remember them showing like some of the clips of like Sam Neill, you know, just staring at something, you know, just in, staring in wonder at these dinosaurs since the very first time that his character, you know, shows up on the island and he's looking at all these dinosaurs. And I remember that that excitement of they didn't show you in the in the ads what he was looking at. You had to go to the movie to see it. And it's so different from what they show now. I mean, you couldn't get away with that now, really. Well, maybe you could if you did it right. But you can't You can't have the payoff be some really cool CGI thing because that's been done to death and everybody knows what a really cool CGI thing looks like. And yeah, it looks great, but there's it doesn't there's no substitute for the first time this ever happened because this was revolutionary. And I, I want to say that when I first saw it in the theater, it blew me away, but not really. I don't think those first scenes, you know, in the daytime, really, they still, they look the same now that they did then. They look good for the time, but they don't have that massive weight and they don't look super real. Not like the dinosaur, not like the T-Rex, you know, the T-Rex later on looks amazing, still does. And the animatronic T-Rex, of course, looks fine. It's a little stiff, but you know, what are you going to do? It's an animatronic. But um, yeah, man, this, this was just a big event movie. It was a big summer blockbuster from the guy that invented summer blockbusters back with Jaws. And he continued with this movie. And yeah, it still holds up. Still got a lot of great tension, acting strong. The writing by the original author is fantastic. Um, it's not perfect, so it's not going to get a nine or above, but it's going to get a strong 8.5. It's it's eminently rewatchable. You could watch it again today and still have a great time. And, uh, yeah, highly recommended. Yeah. And everyone, there's a new one coming out and it just so happens it's the 25th anniversary of this one. So lots of, uh, buzz going on about this. And speaking of brilliant writing, the writer or author of the book is Michael Crichton. And I have a quote that, uh, I think is relevant to part of our discussion here. It's a bit lengthy, so bear with me. He says, I want to pause here and talk about this notion of consensus and the rise of what has been called consensus science. I regard consensus science as an extremely pernicious development that ought to be stopped cold in its tracks. Historically, the claim of consensus has been the first refuge of scoundrels. It is a way to avoid debate by claiming that the matter is already settled. Whenever you hear the consensus of scientists agree on something or other, reach for your wallet because you're being had. Let's be clear, the work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Science, on the contrary, requires only one investigator who happens to be right, which means that he or she has results that are verifiable by reference to the real world. In science, consensus is irrelevant. What is relevant is reproducible results. The greatest scientists in history are great precisely because they broke with the consensus. There is no such thing as consensus science. If it's consensus, it isn't science. If it's science, then it isn't consensus, period. I dig that quote. I think that uh, Crichton was a brilliant guy, and this can be applied in so many areas. But I think that the biggest one would be in the climate change or climate debate. And then uh, we can we can wind this down. But I just want to throw that out there and, and get your thoughts on it real quick. Oh, certainly. That's uh, that quote is very prescient because you hear that a lot today. Is that it's been decided? You know, ninety eight percent of all scientists agree. Which we've talked about that in the past. It's a completely made up thing there is no consensus and even if it was a consensus it wouldn't mean that it was true i mean it was once the consensus that the earth was flat it was once the consensus that gods threw thunderbolts down i mean it doesn't matter what's matter is the truth and that's a great quote and it illustrates that perfectly and i wish 
more people understood or held that value to heart because so often the left or anybody pushing any kind of a agenda like that likes to point to like to a consensus. It's the same kind of argument that I heard many, many times from religious folks, you know, like 99% or 98% of people on earth believe in a God. And I'm like, okay, so does that prove that a God exists? No. Does it mean that a lot of people believe in a God? Sure. Just like the climatology debate. Just because a lot of people think one thing doesn't mean it's true. So good stuff. Think for yourself, everyone. And we thank you for joining us for this episode of The Last Nighters. Uh, we do welcome your comments, your ratings, your reviews. Uh, we've got the social medias out there. We've got the YouTube. Give us some comments, some likes, and subscribes. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 25. And I uh, just want to say thanks again. And we will catch you guys next week on what movie are we doing? We haven't figured this out yet, have we? I don't think we have. We were talking about it, throwing it back and forth. Well, I uh, threw out. Do we want to mention what we were talking about? All right, let's do it. Let Whatever you throw out there, we're doing. Three billboards outside of Missouri, or whatever it is, Missouri. All right, three billboards it is on the next episode of The Last Nighters. And with that, I say goodnight from last night. And we shall continue that transmission turn the dinos gay for a little bit more time. They do do it themselves. Well, life finds a way, right? And I meant to mention this in the last nighters portion, but there was uh, the helicopter ride when they're first approaching the island and Grant has two female ends of the seatbelts. That's right, he does. And that's supposed to demonstrate or telegraph that he has two females and yet he still finds a way to strap himself in. Do you think that's what they were doing? Was Was that intended? Seems to be. Seems to be like a subtle little telegraphing, you know, a subtle little premonition. Could be. Very well could be. I don't know. It was just, uh, it seemed like a, a really well-made movie. I mean, any movie that was made, you know, 25 years ago that isn't just a straight up, you know, drama where p- people are talking. You know, it relies on special effects. It relies on certain techniques and it still holds up. That's an impressive achievement. I'll agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's weird to think that this is 25 years old because generally speaking, when I go back and watch some of the uh, films that are of this genre or this uh, era or earlier, like this really stood out with the Planet of the Apes, which is now 50 years old, um, just how dated it looks. And even the whole style of acting has changed. And we got some comments uh, on YouTube related to our descriptions of Heston not being the best actor. And we talked about that a little bit in the Incredibles episode. Um, but uh, it still holds up. I think better than most films made around this time, you know, in history, right? Like, I would say that, yeah, the rely on, they were trying to do, you know, you sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, well, you clearly didn't have the budget or the know-how or the ability to pull off the things you were trying to pull off. Like if you watch like a movie like Alien 3, where there's like this horrific green cutout around the alien every time it appears or, you know, things like that, um, you know, you're like, maybe you shouldn't have, shouldn't have tried that technique, maybe do a different thing, maybe do a more, do a more established thing that's going to look a little bit better, maybe hold up a little bit better. But this, it was fairly seamless. Yeah. And it wasn't even a matter of like, they spared no expense because the budget was $64 million, which I mean, it's not like nothing, but for the, the scale that this movie is and the amount of CGI and, and technology that had to go into creating it, I would have expected it to cost even more. Well, this is only a few years after really the advent of the personal computer. I mean, not to say that, you know, the, the real personal computers are back in the 70s, but nobody actually had any of them. I mean, computers started becoming ubiquitous in the, you know, the mid to late 80s. And 
I can't even, I mean, I guess the first real CGI was maybe Tron, but I don't even know if you can compare the two in terms of quality. I guess there's a, a lot of other kind of effects going on in Tron as well, but there are those those light cycle races and some other effects. But I don't know, man. I, I thought this was, this is, this is kind of unique. Um, there's even, you know, movies that happen after this that you don't really look back on with a whole lot of favorableness until you get to maybe like The Matrix in 99, where you, you look back on that and you go, yeah, they're doing good stuff there. Yeah, and that's another movie that we should uh, do again soon we did that on the reed rothbard podcast a couple of years ago but i don't think we really got into it and uh, i think it's it's well worth doing that one again well and they're probably going to reboot that thing i've heard rumors it's been you know almost 20 years now so it's about that time for the story to be retold i suppose and then we're going to get um you know all the avatar sequels which will be coming up i guess it's what four sequels coming up that they're all shooting concurrently yeah so i don't understand how they reboot certain movies and franchises that aren't even that old. <laughs> yeah. When I first heard them talking about the matrix, I'm like that those movies still hold up. What are you talking about? But you know, in terms of looks, because you know, why else would you be rebooting them? Um, in ter- except for, you know, of course, to satisfy the market, make more money, but if it's a proven commodity, right? So, right. I mean, unless you really think you're going to like raise the bar, you know, visually, aesthetically directing, acting, you know, are they going to stick with the, uh, you know, the wire foo? Are they going to, what are they going to do? I and mean, what are they going to take the story? Is it just going to be a straight reboot? I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't actually mind it if you wanted to retell the second and the third movies. I thought that first movie was damn near perfect, but the second and the third movies I thought were big messes. So if they actually wanted to retell those stories or, you know, take it in a whole new direction, I'd be completely on board with that. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, the first movie, pretty much flawless. And then they decline in quality very much thereafter. It's a pretty steep drop, and it gets very convoluted as well. Oh, boy, does it ever. Tell me tell me what exactly the story is. I mean, there is that one guy, right, that was really got into it, and he thinks that all the whole series is a big masterpiece, and it's all a metaphor and an allegory for all kinds of other things. But I don't know. I'd have to look into it. Yeah, I think that was uh, Mark Passio, who had like a three or four hour presentation, like analyzing all the symbology and, and hidden meaning within the Matrix. And I think yeah. he equated it to um, some religious... Uh... Like, like people have formed a religion on it. And I think he talks about that as well. Oof. I mean, I always saw it as, you know, like Neo being like Jesus and whatnot. But oh, I'm sure I'm sure he's put way more thought into it than I have. So any dumb ideas I have right now aren't going to be any kind of good, interesting critique on what this guy's talking about. So I'll just shut up. Get you a nice warm glass to shut the hell up. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we uh, wind this one down? And maybe we can do a little bit of Kathleen Turner Overdrive. We'll cut loose a little bit for this uh, post-show action that we affectionately call the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. You can get access to that at patreon.com slash readrothbard or actualanarchy.com slash patreon. Uh, Also, click on our socials and like us and uh, give us comments. Do the subscribe on the YouTube and on the iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and other places where podcasts are for free. And uh, any last comments from you, Robert, on our Jurassic Park episode, which can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 82. Just thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to keep tuning in. Give us an excuse to keep doing this. I appreciate you all. Tune in for the next episode, which is going to be three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. A lot of interesting um, issues raised in that movie, as I recall. Um, protagonist has a legitimate beef, but then they 
then they go how you know they get frustrated and then they call upon government to fix the problem and government is absolutely ill-equipped to do so and you know it's a big old mess but it's a very realistic mess that seems like it could have happened anywhere in the country so tune in for that one watch it if you haven't seen it and then join us back for the the big discussion all right and i thank you as well and we'll see you guys all next week maximum freedom everyone Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do